Welcome to the Jongus Games Podcast. In this episode, you'll be hearing the audio from an edited version of the top 10 list that I've recorded live recently, where I discussed my favorite games to play at two players. As always, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. You can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash jongetsgames, and if you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this one, then I do hope that you would consider supporting that campaign. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as a comment on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Uh, so, this is my top 10 list for my favorite games to play at two players. And for this list, I did not restrict myself to two player only games. I really just looked at all of the many, many hundreds of games that I played and tried to see which ones would jump out to me as like a game I'd really want to play at two players. Uh, in particular, um, you know, specifically at that player count, what makes this game better than others when playing at that player count. And so I've tried to organize these as best I could uh, with that in mind. So the, my, my favorite is at one and my least favorite of the 10 is at 10. But um, realistically, I could very easily swap a bunch of these around. Um, so yeah, that's the, uh, the method that I use to build out this list. And with that in mind, I think let's go ahead and jump into the first of these. And that one is going to be Passing Through Petra. Uh, as you can see, I've actually got the Board Game Geek page here. I'm just going to use that for reference and maybe some photos. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but anyway, so Passing Through Petra is a game that came out in 2018. And this is a game we really liked the first couple times we played it with multiple players. But then um, I've actually played this one uh, a couple of times, two players with Jessica, and it really worked well at that uh, count. Uh, now, before I go into why, I'll give a brief idea of what this game um, is actually like to play. There's a whole bunch of photos up on Board Game Geek. In this game, uh, everyone has their own little player board, and you have a row of tiles along the bottom of your board, and then you have stacks of tiles along the top. And as you add new tiles, you scoot the row on the bottom over, and as they fall off the right side, you put them up on the top. And the reason I say that is because this is a puzzle game, realistically, where you're trying to make that work. You want to have the right color tiles at the bottom to match up with the right color tiles at the top when you do specific uh, scoring conditions. Uh, now, in this game, you uh, do some action selection. I'm not going to try to go into all the details, but what you're trying to do is spin your little token around these circles as many times as you can, and you get to move farther for the more matches that you do in your player area. And you actually gather the tiles from this long row in the middle of the board. So what this means is, you're trying to play through this game, trying to take the right tiles from this row of tiles. You can only take some of them. And then you scoot them along the bottom of your board, skipping a bunch of things out. And this is all just very puzzly. And when you play this with just two players, it's a really interesting, intense experience because you know that you have more control over the tiles that you can take from the middle of the row because there's less people to actually remove the tiles that you really need. Um, but also, you spend a decent amount of time thinking through the puzzle that you have in your area. Which tiles do I take? In what order do I take them? And then how do I actually get as many points as I can from that? And um, in our two-player games with this one, even though there's a lot of decisions to make and some really cool combo-y moments, our games took like 40 minutes, if not even a little bit less. Uh, part of that's because this is essentially a race game. You are trying to um, get around these circles as many times as you can, a certain number of times. I'm not going to go into the details, but this is not a victory point game, realistically. You're just trying to get to the threshold before anyone else does. So there is a racing element to it as you're trying to be as efficient as possible, trying to get all these combos going. And at two players, I really liked the planning process that we had, being able to see what tiles were there. Um, I have played this one at four players and it was just fine at that player count as well. But I think it's probably 
even better at the lower player counts because you have more control um, in the chaos of the tiles as they come out and how you want to make your puzzle work. And I haven't seen a lot of analysis paralysis in this game, but um, there is a possibility for it. And so if you have less people, then you have um, less uh, people you have to wait through their turns. Uh, so yeah, that one's worked really well. Let's now move on to the game number nine on this list of uh, uh, games I like to play at two players. Uh, this one is Mandala, and this is a two-player only game. So uh, there are some two-player only games that do show up on this list. And uh, I've talked at a pretty great length about this one uh, several times. This is a really neat game where you are trying to really get into your opponent's head. There's kind of a bluffing element going on where you just have this stack of different colored uh, cards and you are you have them in your hand and you're playing them out to different spots over here on the board. And what you're trying to do is initiate scorings in these areas when it is best for you. And I'm not going to go into the details of how this game works, but since this is a two-player only game, you are it's obviously designed for that player count, but also this is a game that I've played a whole bunch already because it takes like 20 to maybe 30 minutes to play if it's a particularly long game. And it is really all about trying to <laughs> bluff a little bit, but you're really trying to make good decisions based off of what you think your opponent might have. And there's lots of room for taking educated guesses and risks that can sometimes really pay off for you or just completely blow up in your face. In order to score one of these areas on the board, there needs to be at least one card of all six colors. And once a card color has been placed into that uh, half of the board, you cannot place um, that color into any of the other areas. So that means you might be trying to hoard up a whole bunch of the red cards, but as soon as your opponent plays one red card on their side, your whole hand of red cards cannot be played because there's only one red card that can be in that area total. So it might make sense to put one or two red cards out now, expecting to put more out later because you can fill the same spot in, but of course you are losing actions when you're doing that and you're trying to get the most points from this. Uh, so I just found this one to be a uh, really cool... Um, Again, I keep saying bluffing, and I think in my plays, I do find that I have a bit of a bluffing mentality as I play some cards to try and make it seem like I don't have a bunch more in my hand to then drop a whole bunch to try and take a big scoring that's good, um, which can sometimes completely backfire when you try to do that and then it scores before you can actually lay the rest of your cards down. Um, I, I guess another thing I really like about this game is the fact that when you score these halves of the board, each player... Um, most often, uh, most often, uh, each player can take some of these cards. So you're really jockeying for the order in which you're taking the cards, and you're con uh, constantly incentivizing these pots in ways that, um, again, I'm trying not to go into the specifics of. Uh, I have talked about this one in an impressions vlog that I uh, put out at some point last year, and I played it a bunch since then. So if you'd like to learn more about it, then definitely check that one out. But as far as a two-player only experience, um, it's a relatively small box, it's a bunch of cards, and it's this big cloth mat. Um, I actually saw in the uh, images on BoardGameGeek that uh, somebody played this game with Corkle tiles, which sounds really interesting. I think that would totally work, and it would probably be even easier to play that way, but that's just a little tangent. Uh, <laughs> it looks like Josh Clark posted this photo up there, and uh, uh, that seems like a really cool way to play Mandala. So the next game is Innovation. Uh, this is a game that I have played 23 times, uh, which is quite a lot. <laughs> That's a lot more than most of the games that uh, I play in general or games even on this list. Um, I haven't played this one in a little bit, uh, in a little while, and technically it's a two to four player game, but it is hands down best at two players because this is a crazy game. It's super chaotic and it um, is it really leans into uh, tactical play. So this is a card game where you have different age decks uh, and you essentially start off with age one and you make it all the way, I believe, to age 10. Um, and thematically you go from like the Stone Age all the way up to 
uh, launching off uh, spacecraft and whatnot. Um, but the way the game uh, actually works is you're going to be drawing cards from the age that you have access to, and then you're going to play them out in front of you, and then you can activate the cards that are in front of you to do their actions um, as your action on your turn. It's your turn, you could like play a card or activate a card that you have, and you can also splay these cards out. The cards have different icons on them, and the way that you can splay the cards um, differs as the game goes on. If you splay in one direction, it might show plus one icon, another direction it'll show two, potentially, and another direction could show up to three of these icons, and when you take these actions, more often than not, you are analyzing all of the icons that you have in front of you, and oftentimes comparing them to your opponents to then do the stuff that you want to do as you're progressing through the, um, the ages in innovation. So what that means is this is a very chaotic game because as you're playing through the game, you're just randomly drawing cards from the top of these age decks. And each of these cards has wacky abilities, like not every single one of them, but in general, there are some pretty crazy uh, effects that you can pull off from these cards. And I've found that playing this even with three players and certainly at four players, um, you just can't control anything. Uh, there's so many things that happen by the time it's your turn again that um, it's a little bit too chaotic of an experience for me. Um, this game is really sung at two players. Uh, I've played uh, like hour-long games of this at two players, and I remember at one point I played like a nine-minute game of this because there are many different actions you can do in this game to essentially progress along in ages um, to like draw a card from a stack or two ahead from where you are. And when you draw cards, you can take the number that is equal to the highest number in front of you. So if you draw one card from the age six stack and play it in front of you, now you can draw from the age six stack. And in this one two-player game that was like less than 10 minutes, we just found every one of those cards that let us jump ahead. And we made it all the way to age 10 in a shocking amount of time. And we were just laughing the entire game. I don't even remember who won that game. It was uh, of note because of how quick and how ridiculous it was. I think it ended with a, uh, a robot invasion of the world or something. Like there's definitely some wacky stuff going on here. And I think it's just a brilliant uh, system for playing games, but it does suffer at higher player counts. Uh, but at two, when you just have that uh, zero-sum situation, especially with a lot of the attacks and stuff that you can do, uh, I think that um, it really sings there. Uh, and it is worth noting that you can attack your opponents in pretty big ways. So that's, again, part of the reason why having just one other player lets you analyze the situation better, know if you're in a scary spot or not, and also, you know, they go and then you get to go right uh, after them. So it's easier to analyze everything. Uh, so I think this game is wonderful. Um, I actually have one of the first 100 copies that came out like a very long time ago. When was this out? Like 2011? Uh, 2010 is when this game first came out. So I have the original, original, original printing. It's um, gone through several different publishers. Some of them have different art, but I still have the uh, the original one that I picked up and I don't see myself getting rid of this one realistically ever, even though I haven't played it in years because it is such a cool two-player experience. Okay, it's now time to move on to the next game, and that one is Carcassonne. Uh, this is a two to five player game. I didn't realize it went up to five players. I've certainly never played it at five. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, according to Board Game Geek, it is best at two, and I could not agree more. Carcassonne is a brilliant tile-laying game uh, where uh, <laughs> I probably don't have to say too much about it. The game is like 22 years old at this point. But um, in this game, there's just a big stack of tiles. And on every single one of your turns, you are just going to place a single tile down onto the board. All right, so um, in this example, you can see that you are uh, laying a single tile down um, on every one of your turns. And these tiles have different edges that match up to different terrain. And the terrain always has to match. And that right there 
it's a really crucial rule to this game because it really restricts where you could put these cards, uh, these tiles down. If there's a road, it must match with another road. If there's a city half, then it has to match up with a city. And as you play these tiles down, you can also place little meeples down onto the spots and they score based off of where you put them. If they're on a road, they'll score for roads. Cities will score for cities. And you can also put them face down into fields to score for completed cities once the game is over. Now this game um, has a million expansions and honestly I'm mostly experienced with playing it vanilla with none of the expansions at all, which plays exceptionally well. And the reason I love this game at two players is, I'm gonna be a broken record today about this, uh, is the fact that only one other person is going to go between your turns. So you have this zero sum situation between you and your opponent and you can really see what they're trying to do and you can definitely get in their way. Um, Carcassonne is interesting in that you could play this uh, in a very friendly manner where you're just uh, building castles and making long roads and all that kind of stuff and it's all nice. Or you could play it super cutthroat, which is the way I prefer to play it, and specifically at two players. Because you might have an opponent trying to make a really big city and then you can um, swing in and then decide to uh, make it almost impossible for them to complete that city, or maybe literally impossible, by placing a tile in such a way that there is no other tile that exists that could fit into that spot, or they'd be really lucky to actually find that tile. Uh, so very often, the best move on your turn in Carcassonne is one that hurts your opponent, specifically when you're playing at two players. If you're playing this one at four players, then by hurting one opponent, you're kind of helping everybody else. Like if you have a bad turn that also makes somebody else in a bad position, the other two people are going to net positive on you and that other opponent because maybe your turn wasn't very efficient. Um, I don't want to sound like I dislike this game at four players. I've actually enjoyed playing this one at four, three, and two players, but it is absolutely a shining star of a game at two players because of all these things that I've mentioned already. It's just, it almost feels like an abstract game at that point. And um, I just jump at the opportunity to play this one at two players, uh, realis realistically with any number of people, but um, uh, two players is just an exceptional way to go. Uh, Kim asked, have I played Motainai and its expansion? Uh, no, I haven't played the expansion. I have played Motainai once with uh, a friend of mine a very long time ago when we first got it. Um, we played it once. Actually, we might have played it twice. I, I don't recall. We might have played it back to back. And it was a very strange experience. Obviously, the same designer as Carl Chudik. But um, I, I still actually think I have my copy of it because I was kind of expecting always to come back to it and try it again. But it was so weird. It was such a strange experience and, and kind of clunky in those, in those first plays that it didn't really have me coming back. And I think between the two, um, Motai and I and uh, Innovation, I would absolutely gravitate towards Innovation, mostly because of my experience with it. A lot of people really love it, but for me, I bounced a little bit off of it. I kept meaning to come back to it because I assumed that I would like it if I invested more time, but I never got around to investing more time. Ryan says, Carcassonne has a 20th anniversary edition uh, that's either out now or coming soon. That's good to know. Um, I have a copy of Carcassonne. I picked it up for $10 at a flea market. Um, it's the base, base, base version. doesn't even have the river expansion. So if there's a nice 20th anniversary edition, I might look into picking up a copy of that. All right, let's now move on to the next game, which is Equinox. Uh, and interestingly enough, this is the second game by Asmati Games that I'm talking about today. The first one was Innovation. Uh, now, <laughs> I put Equinox 2012 on here because there is a new game coming out called Equinox. I think it's releasing in this year or so. It's completely different, but it shares the name. Uh, now, Equinox is a two-player only game, so kind of similar to Mandala. And I think this is a hidden gem that no one ever talks about, I think because this, um, this game had a very tiny uh, print run. Uh, so essentially, it was a Kickstarter that went up back in 2012 or 2011. And if I remember correctly, it had like a 
four-day Kickstarter campaign or a three-day, maybe seven. It was definitely a week or under. And um, I jumped on it because at that point, I already knew that I loved innovation. So I liked the stuff that Asmani was coming out with. And so I said, sure, it's worth a shot. And I've played this one 10 times now and it's in my collection and I never see getting rid of it because it is such a neat game. So the way this game works is there's just this big stack of tiles and every single tile has a black side and a white side. And then it also has effects printed on it on both sides that are identical. So for example, the disease tile has the exact same icon and everything on the white side as well as the black side. Now, each of the players takes on the role of one of those colors, you're either the white or the black player, and on your turn, you are going to be playing these tiles out into an ever-growing hex grid. Um, now, there is a market of these tiles um, kind of off to the side, uh, and when you play a tile, you play it from a face-up market. And um, after you do that, you bring new tiles randomly out of the bag, and there's this neat thing where new tiles that come out get a victory point token placed on top of them, and if you take a tile with a victory point token, you give that to your opponent. So that's essentially a balancing mechanic to say, well, this is a brand new tile. It could completely upend the uh, current game state. It's really amazing for me. I got lucky. So as a consolation prize, my opponent also gets a victory point, um, which, you know, is a, a swing of essentially two points. You could have had it, but you didn't. I guess isn't really a swing, but um, it's just a nice uh, tiny touch. I shouldn't go into the details of this so much, but uh, the way these cards work in general is you have some cards that attack other cards. Uh, and in general, what that happens is it just flips those tiles over. Uh, so if I'm the black player, I want to have as many of these uh, tiles beyond the black side as I can because of the way it scores. And I'm not going to talk about the details of the scoring, but you are just adding these tiles out on either side that you want. I could be the black player and put a tile down on the white side because that might cause an effect or ripple action from other tiles that are down that is actually beneficial to me. It's unlikely that I do that, but it's something that you could do if you wanted. So some of these tiles are attacks that can flip the tiles over, like I said. Some of them also have ongoing uh, rules modifications like uh, that have to do with the tiles that are placed around it. Like I know there's one type of tile that says there must always be more black tiles around this tile than there are white tiles. And there's a equal version of that for the black. There's another one that um, you cannot place any other tiles next to it. There are other tiles that you can place down that can actually move things around on the map. And this is just a brilliant abstract strategy type game, especially once you've played it a few times. I have 10 logged plays of this, and it's been a few years since I've played, but I, I did get to the point, especially back when I played it more often, that I knew what tiles were in the game, and I could kind of plan around that. Because every time you play this game, uh, you use every single tile. I think that's true. <laughs> it's been a while since I played, but you go through that entire deck, but it's shuffled up in a bag so you don't know the order in which these tiles will come out, and that order can drastically affect the way the game works. Uh, there are also scoring tiles that don't do anything until the game is over, and then they will flip various tiles over at that point, and also might drop victory point tokens down onto various tiles, and if there's victory point tokens on tiles that match your color, then you also get those victory points. So this is a uh, fascinating game of just jockeying back and forth. It has a uh, military vibe to it sometimes with the way you can place like a bow and arrow down or an ax uh, icon that flips certain tiles over in spots that you didn't think that your opponent could get to. But remember, I said there is a face-up row of uh, these tiles that you take from. You don't have any hidden information. Um, so realistically, you know, on my turn, I might play a couple tiles and then I refill the market. The only randomness there is the new tile that just came out between my turn and their turn. And again, if they use that tile because it's good for them, 
I will end up getting a victory point, which, you know, is nice to have. Uh, so it can be a little bit chaotic, but there's definitely a lot of strategy to go on in this game. Uh, and oftentimes you'll play a tile just because you don't want your opponent to. Uh, it might be okay for you, but amazing for your opponent, and that is probably going to be more than enough uh, to make it worthwhile for you to actually put it out there. So I honestly cannot recommend Equinox enough. Um, I don't think I've really ever heard Anybody else talking about this game? Uh, it does not uh, have that much traction considering it's been out for nine years, uh, but you can apparently pick it up for very cheap on the Board Game Geek market. Um, I'm not saying everybody has to buy this game, but I am so pleased to have it, and I, I wish it got more, I don't know, buzz and respect. I think that um, it really is a, a gem that uh, got completely overlooked for some reason or another. And um, this one is like always in a travel pack. If I'm going to be um, going anywhere, uh, vacation or whatnot, and I want to bring some games, I bring this one because the box is just as big as it can uh, has to be. It's, it's honestly a little bit hard to pack all of these tiles in there, but it's a really small compact box and a brilliant game. I keep saying that over and over again. I should probably <laughs> stop repeating myself. Let's now move on to the next game, and this one is Pixel Tactics. Uh, this one came out in 2012, and it is another two-player only game. There's definitely a few of those that I'm talking about today. And this is one that I have played 14 times so far, and this game is super great. <laughs> uh, so at its heart, this is um, just a card game. Uh, you will need some components uh, uh, as well to make it work. So the way this game works is you have a deck of cards, a 52 card deck, I believe it was 52 cards, and um, you have uh, two players with identical decks. Uh, it's been a while since I played it, even though I played 14 times, but I believe um, I believe it was 26 cards in each. But either way, um, each of these cards is multi-use. There are, uh, I believe, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, I think, different ways each of these cards can be played. And you have an area in front of you, which is a three by three grid. Uh, now at the very front, you have the vanguard. In the middle, you have the flank, and at the back, you have the rear. And then you have a hero card that's placed in the middle. Uh, now, the way this game works is you give these two identical decks to each of the players, and then you start by selecting a hero. So every single card that comes in this deck can be a hero, or it could be a specific type of card that has um, effects if it's in the vanguard, the flank, or the rear, and you can also just discard these cards as a, a one-time effect. So that means right out of the gate, Every single card can be a special hero with asymmetric abilities and specific ways that this hero plays uh, differently from others. And you start by putting that hero in front of you. It might not be called a hero, but either way, the champion or something like that in the middle in front of you. And then as you play through the game, you have, I believe, a couple of actions on your turn. And you can draw cards and you can also play these cards out onto empty spots in the 3x3 grid in front of you although the champion is always right there in the middle, unless the rules change that. Uh, you can also spend actions to cause your uh, characters to attack, and they simply inflict damage equal to their type across the way over at your opponent, and you win the game by defeating their champion. Uh, now you can uh, make that difficult to do by putting blockers in front of your champion that can absorb the damage that comes in. Um, there's lots of different effects that go on in this game, and again, every single one of these cards um, does something different, but thematically some what's accurate based off of where they are at. Uh, for example, the Barbarian feels like a Barbarian if it's in the uh, Vanguard as well as the Flank and the Rear, but if it's in the Vanguard, it's much more about doing a bunch of damage, if I remember correctly, versus it might be um, more of a support Barbarian if it's off uh, way back in the back. This is just an example. It's been a long time since I played uh, about um, these specific cards. Uh, but 
Every time you actually kill one of these cards, not a champion, because if the champion's dead, the game is over. When you kill a, a card, you don't remove it. You flip it over, and it's now a dead body on the field. And you can't actually place new characters down onto spots that have dead bodies. You have to spend actions to remove those dead bodies. Or maybe you'll play the uh, necromantic uh, character down that can actually revive and heal up these characters. Um, so there's just a whole bunch of variety that comes in with the base game of Pixel Tactics. Uh, I don't remember exactly how many there have been, but I think there's been at least five versions of Pixel Tactics, which I believe all use the same core rule set, but have completely different sets of new cards. And I own Pixel Tactics 1 and 2, although I don't think I've ever actually played 2. Uh, I've played 1 14 times, and there is enough replayability in that very first deck of cards that I never even found myself going to the next one. Because, again... Every single card can be a different champion, and that means that you can play this game so many times with different champions, and each of these champions really makes the game feel different. Uh, some of them uh, will just be a glass cannon that are all about doing damage and, um, you know, doesn't take very much for them to die. Other ones can um, really affect the overall game state. Again, I'm having a hard time coming up with, with examples, but trust me on this, that um, the way they... Uh, the, the mechanics of these champions makes one game feel drastically different from the next. Um, I have not played this one a lot recently, although I did play it once in the last year and was kind of reminded at how amazing this game is. So this is one I never see getting rid of. Um, it's also such a tiny game, just a deck of cards. Uh, and then you do need counters to track health. Although for us, um, I oftentimes, especially if I'm traveling, have a bag of dice anyway because Liar's Dice is fun. And I just use dice to track the amount of health that um, all of the different characters have. Uh, so I strongly recommend uh, Pixel Tactics. It is, you know, a bit in your face. Uh, this is not an indirect interaction type of game. You are uh, slugging each other back and forth. Uh, but the amount of cool plays that you can pull out and awesome moments uh, really makes this game shine. Uh, as I briefly mentioned before, every card can also be discarded for a one-time effect, which um, will be thematically accurate and also just have a big ramification. Uh, I know that one of them, I think, just uh, heals up every dead body on the board. They all come back to life, but that's a one-time use. Whereas if you put that card into play, they can also revive, but I think at a much less efficient pace. But then, of course, you have a character in play that you can use. Uh, so yeah, uh, Pixel Tactics is a fascinating game that I don't see getting rid of. Yeah, Daniel, uh, Pixel Tactics does look like a trading card game, but it is not. Um, maybe they've changed that in the future, but it absolutely isn't. When you get the game, you just get everything that you need in there. They're definitely leaning in that kind of uh, pixely uh, artistic vibe, but um, honestly, you just need to buy Pixel Tactics 1, and you've got just a ton of replayability in there. You do not need to have uh, even more than that. Yeah, uh, Tom, uh, Pixel Tactics is a mean game, but it's also not very long. Uh, I didn't mention that, but I think most games, well, this uh, Board Game Geek says 30 minutes, and I think that's pretty accurate. So there can be big, mean, swingy moments, but it's relatively short, and it's one of those games where you're usually slugging back and forth, so, you know, it's less of an issue. Uh, I don't, don't generally play mean, uh, direct interaction games that much, but... Pixel Tactics, I think, is, is worth it for me anyway, especially because of the, the small player time. That, that, that really is a big uh, aspect to it. So the next game I'll be talking about isn't really a game, it's more of a system, and that is Exit Games. Uh, these are all published by Cosmos, and they are one-time uh, playing escape room type games. Um, each one of them comes in a, a relatively small box about the size of a standard paperback book. And um, in these games, there's a little bit of story going on and um, you proceed through a wide variety of different puzzles. Uh, and I really do mean wide. Uh, for some of these puzzles, you are 
uh, writing on things with a Sharpie. Other times you're cutting things up and maybe even taping things together. Uh, you're doing a lot of folding of material and a decent amount of trying to find specific clues uh, in order to make your way through this. Um, now, each one of these experiences, um, supposedly, well, Board Game Geek says they take 45 to 90 minutes. And I think uh, you can time yourself and I think you're supposed to finish within 60 minutes. Uh, but we have played, I think, essentially all of them that are the... Uh, three out of five difficulty or harder. We haven't uh, gone for the easier ones because they're less fun when they're super easy. Uh, but we've played, uh, I think, well over 10 of these and almost all of them were played at two players with myself and my wife, Jessica. We've really enjoyed these as a, a nice evening experience of puzzling through and working together um, as a collaborative team. Uh, because as you start this off, there's some decks of cards and some pamphlets and whatnot. You usually start off with a bit of a pamphlet brochure and you read through it. Maybe there's some flavor with a letter that the person who locked you in the castle is is uh, uh, telling you what they're going to do and why you're there. But then that letter itself might have clues. Like you might notice that um, the first uh, letter of each word in the entire letter is capitalized. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and then you might read all of those backwards or every other one based off of some other clue that you found. And that's going to lead you on down the path. Uh, now, every one of these exit games, there is a decoder disc thing where it's it's a circular thing. Maybe they're not always circular, but all the ones I've seen are circular with multiple circular discs on them with little windows. And the way you actually uh, complete the various puzzles in the game, I think in general, there's 10 puzzles that you have to get through in each one of these experiences is you actually end up with a three digit number or three icons or something like that. You spin the decoder wheel around until you get a number and then you check a deck of cards to see if you did it right or not. Uh, and that system is brilliant. I'm not gonna go into the details of it more, but it, it's really well done. And it has uh, some really good lasting power as we've played through so many of these games. Uh, in some of these, like I said, there are numbers and others there's symbols or colors or that kind of thing, which really varies things around. Um, for example, the Pharaoh's Tomb, I think was maybe the favorite one that we've done so far. Uh, we really like that one, but we've enjoyed a bunch of the other ones. Um, in that one, you're in a, you know, a Egyptian tomb trying to get out. And one thing that I love about these games, these, um, you know, uh, experiences, I don't know, they're games, whatever, uh, is that there are usually one, two, three very outside the box puzzles, and then probably like five very decent puzzles. puzzles. And then there's oftentimes like one or maybe even up to three puzzles that aren't actually that great. Uh, it is worth noting that in each one of these boxes, there are decks of hint cards, where if you just find yourself stumped, you can try these hints. And they usually have multiple tiers. Uh, the first one will just say, you need to have seen this card, this card, and this page to solve it. But it doesn't tell you how to solve it just says what you need. And maybe you realize, oh, we don't even have that card yet. We can't solve this puzzle yet. Let's just ignore it. Um, and we've had to lean on those sometimes. Uh, but in general, the experiences have just been very high overall. I've really liked the out-of-the-box uh, stuff. Uh, but yeah, at, at the end of each one of these experiences, Jessica and I usually talk about the 10 puzzles again. Maybe not each one, but we we discuss the ones we like the most. And then maybe the ones that seemed a little bit weak that may, maybe could have been tweaked around. Um, so I'm not going to say that every single minute of every one of these escape games is amazing. But we've really enjoyed them, and we still have, I think, two or three more at the house that we haven't cracked open yet. And as more come out, um, I pick them up. Again, as long as they're the uh, three out of five difficulty or harder. Um, because why not? Um, it's a fun, hour-long experience. I think they're usually 
$15 or less, so it's not the cheapest hour in the world, but we really quite enjoy it. And um, as I guess I've talked about this so much, I haven't mentioned the two-player aspect to it. Um, technically, Board Game Geek says this is a one to six player game, but I have preferred playing it at two. Uh, at one player, I think I would just get frustrated. Uh, it is really good to work off of somebody else to try and figure out the solution. But I have played a couple of these at up to four players, and that was fine, but I found that in general with these exit games, there's usually one or at most two puzzles that you can work on at any given time. Uh, oftentimes you have little bits to like three or four puzzles in front of you, but you can't complete all of them just yet. But in general, most of the focus of the table is on one specific puzzle trying to crack it. And when you have two people sitting next to each other trying to work that out, that works really well. But if you have four people all the way around the table, a couple of people are looking at it backwards, maybe from far away, it's wor it's fine. It, it, I, I would not say no to playing this with three or four players in the future, or I guess maybe even up to six players, but I think it really does feel designed to be best at two. And there have been many times where one or the other of us, myself or Jessica, figures it out. And that's such an amazing moment. Uh, and I think, you know, having that be coalesced into the two people is just a really good thing. Uh, Jessica is great at logic puzzles and puzzles in general. So in general, it's like, she gets like seven out of 10, and I usually figure out the key part to like three out of 10 of these, but it's still a great moment and a, a wonderful experience that I've had with Jessica, and that's why it's so high up on the list. Uh, Simon asked, do I think it, Pixel Tactics has a high skill ceiling? Um, it certainly might. Uh, even within each individual deck, if you play it a bunch, you will start to know what cards are in there, what options are there. So you might, you know, if you have a whole bunch of dead bodies, then you might try to play for an out, like, there's only three cards left in your deck and you have a whole bunch of dead bodies and you know the Necromancer is in there still because you haven't seen it yet. Um, that's definitely maybe, I don't know if that's high skill, but that's definitely an experience-based uh, um, play style that you can lean into as you play this one a bunch. Um, so I guess my answer is yes-ish. <laughs> uh, Brian mentioned uh, that he's had more fun playing the Unlock games but they've only played one exit, so maybe that wasn't for us. Yeah, I, I did consider uh, putting Unlock on here as well, but... If I'm being honest, we've just really enjoyed the exit games more. Uh, Unlock has been fine. We've played, I think, four to f six, maybe six of them or so. Uh, the last time we played an exit game, uh, an Unlock game, it completely crashed and burned. Um, so maybe I'm unfairly judging the entire series by one very bad play where we didn't even finish it. It was just not fun at all. Um, but in general, it seems like the Unlock games lean more, or at least the ones that we've done, lean more on um, finding stuff, like tiny little, you know, oh, there's a little A hidden behind that box graphically, uh, versus the Exit games. They do sometimes have little things that you need to find in the overall graphics, but it feels like the Exit games from the ones that we've done have leaned a little bit more on the puzzliness and a little bit less of like a, a point and click uh, adventure that some of the unlocks have done. Uh, but again, I have not played enough unlocks to um, say that's the case for all of them. I've just played the first pack of three and then a few of the other ones. And we definitely enjoyed them, but exits are the ones that we've really gone to. Uh, I think part of it is because they're more destructive. You're like folding things, you're cutting things up, you're doing all sorts of like tactile dexterity-based things that you just can't get in unlock because unlock is a repeatable game. Uh, you don't throw it away once you're done. All right, let's now move on to game number three, which is A Feast for Odin, Norwegians. Uh, so this one is a 
newer game compared to a lot of the ones I mentioned earlier, uh, specifically to, uh, 2018. But also specifically, I'm talking about A Feast for Odin with the Norwegians expansion. Um, now, I could talk for 45 minutes about how A Feast for Odin plays, so uh, I obviously don't want to do that. <laughs> I will try to very briefly uh, mention that this is a worker placement style game where you are uh, picking up a whole bunch of Tetrisy pieces and assembling them together uh, in front of you on your player board. So um, in the middle of the table, there is a gigantic action selection board that you use your workers to activate. And in the original uh, Norwegians, I mean, sorry, in the original A Feast for Odin, uh, the board was the same, no matter what the player count was. And it had like 63 different action spots on it. Um, a Feast for Odin is a great game. Really love it overall. Again, try not to go into the details of it. But the Norwegians expansion was a massive patch fix essentially to the game, changing uh, lots of different aspects to it, but in particular, it changed the action board. So now, instead of having a gigantic board that is static, that is always going to be the same options no matter how many people you play with, you actually, the board is split into three chunks and you flip them over depending on the player count. So now the number of spots is different with each of the player counts, and some of them I think might even merge together a little bit. And what that means is this game is so much better balanced for two players than the original one was from my perspective. Um, in the original one, having that many action spots, um, there just was never any conflict at all, <laughs> realistically. You just play an entire game without you know bumping into anyone else's workers. But playing A Feast for Odin Norwegians, um, the board is tighter. It's still quite loose. Like this is a worker placement game where you still have tons of different options available to you, but I love that they fix the board. You like literally throw the old board away and then use this new one. And the reason why I do think I prefer playing A Feast for Odin in general, specifically with the Norwegian expansion, but as far as the overall um, system of A Feast for Odin is because it's really a puzzle game about trying to work together these um, tiny little Tetris pieces that are in front of you so that they um, can fill in the bonuses that you want on your player board. Um, the, the way this puzzle works, it can be really complicated sometimes. Uh, like you need to add in little coins, which are worth points. You're mixing together a whole bunch of different tiles and there's extra rules about the adjacencies of the different colors of the tiles. You can also get um, uh, expansion islands that go next to you. I guess not expansion, they come at the base game, but you can get islands that you can expand out to in order to fill those up to get your income going and other stuff as well. And in this experience, there's a lot to think about, and I have played A Feast for Odin four players before. In fact, relatively recently as well, and Norwegians relatively recently, but it's pretty long. And I think the experience, the A Feast for Odin uh, system experience, just really shines through at two players as well because, well, it, there's less actions happening. You know, it, it's just you and that one opponent across the table. So there's probably gonna be less downtime as people are crunching through all of the different options. Uh, again, with the Norwegian's expansion, the board is balanced to actually be tighter and um, better designed specifically for the two player experience. And what this means is you can really focus on that puzzle. Like you're trying to have the right uh, uh, tokens and you're getting all these different tiles and stuff from the actions in the middle of the board. Not to mention the fact the game comes with this massive stack of cards that can give you various abilities and effects that can also get you towards your goals. And with this many wonderful things to uh, think about, 
it's just good to have less downtime around the table. Again, I won't say no to playing this one with three or four players as long as I have enough time, but um, I think it really sings at two players. Uh, it's, it's honestly, I think, best at two players because of the overall length of time that it takes to play, and you're just doing so much insular stuff. You just have this type of thing that you're trying to do. In general, you're trying not to do the same type of game that your opponent is doing so that you don't tread on their action places as much as well. Um, this is definitely one of those experiences where you just think a whole bunch, make a whole bunch of great decisions, work through some awesome strategies and paths as the game goes on, and then you hope you have the most victory points at the end, at least as far as the games that I've played. Uh, this is probably the least combative worker placement game that I've realistically ever played. Uh, and more often than not, it seems like whenever someone goes onto the spot that you wanted to go onto, it was kind of on accident, and it was it's usually so rare that you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot that somebody else could go onto that spot. Again, that's just how I've played it. Maybe we're not super cutthroat. And there are some specific spots, like immigration spots at certain parts of the game that can be more contentious. But in general, it's a very friendly, super crunchy, wonderful uh, worker placement, uh, heavy, puzzly Euro game that plays exceptionally well at two, uh, specifically with that Norwegian's expansion. Uh, Kabuki Kid asks, what about bigger games like War of the Ring and Star Wars Rebellion? Any fondness for them? Uh, I've never played War of the Ring. I, I wouldn't say no, just to kind of get a merit badge on my my board game, my, my geek, uh, my board game merit badge. There we go. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, I haven't tried it before. I have played Star Wars Rebellion once. It was like a four to five hour game and it was fine. It, if I'm being honest, that one play of it, like I enjoyed the play and I won, but I won on a single die roll. Like it was so close. We had a massive battle at the very end. There's attrition on all sides. All the, the units are dying. The units are dying. It came down to a single die roll, this like five hour game. And you know, that works out well for some people. And I guess you could say, well, that's a pretty amazing climactic finish because it was that balanced overall, or maybe there's just some luck going either way. Um, but you know, it didn't feel like I won the game so much as I rolled better in that at the very end there. Uh, it was a cool experience. I would probably say yes to playing it again in certain situations, but it's not something that I would hunt out. Uh, Coralu mentioned uh, Lost Runes of Arnak. Uh, lots of people playing it at two players. They've only played it at four, which they think is best because it opens the board up more. Uh, I have played Lost Runes of Arnak at two players, and I considered adding that one to the honorable mention list. So spoiler alert, it's not going to be on there. Uh, it did play well, surprisingly well, considering less of the board did open up, but I guess there's less workers to actually go out and occupy those spots. Uh, there's a decent amount of thinking that happens in uh, Lost Runes of Arnak, so um, the downtime can be a thing, so having less players can also make that game sing a little bit better, but... Not quite enough to actually uh, slot it into the list, I thought. All right, let's now move on to game number two, which is Quarkle. Uh, this one was published in 2006, so not the oldest game. Actually, I've talked about Carcassonne is older, but it's definitely not a new game. Uh, now, Quarkle is an abstract game that is best described as um, a Scrabble without the words. Uh, as you place these tiles down, um, there are six different color tiles, and then there are six different uh, shapes of these tiles. And what you are essentially doing is building out words uh, for these tiles by having um, a line, um, uh, vertical or horizontal, that is all the same color but different shapes, or all the same shape but different colors. And the way the game actually plays is you're going to be drawing these tiles randomly from a bag, and you put them uh, in front of you, hiding them from your opponents, which is just like Scrabble, and then you place these down 
as effectively a pattern type word, I keep saying word because I'm talking about Scrabble, in order to score victory points. And the way you get these points um, is pretty puzzly and honestly wonderful. Um, you get points for the length of the word that you did. Um, I should just say the uh, uh, line now because it's not actually a word. But you get points for the length. And then also you can get extra points if the tiles that you placed are adjacent to other tiles that essentially line up and build out those patterns as well. Uh, so what that means is as you are playing through the game, you're trying to place your tiles down in such a way that you can get the most points that you can. But if you are the player who puts the sixth tile down, which is always going to be the last tile, because again, there are six patterns and six colors, and each one of these patterns can be all the same color, but different uh, a different pattern, a different shape, or all the same shape, but different colors. Um, six is the max, and the person who puts the last tile down will get a bonus six victory points, which is a legit amount. Um, winning scores for this game vary depending on the player count, but um, it can oftentimes be, you know, 100 or 80 or something like that. I can't remember exactly. It's been a while <laughs> since I, uh, I've played this one. About a year. Yeah, about a year since I played this one. Uh, but uh, what that means is you have to be constantly trying not to set your opponents up to get the corkle, which is what you call it when you place the final tile down. Uh, now, I play this game at all player counts, um, two, three, and four players, and it's great at all of these player counts, but I think it is just extra special at two players for honestly the same reasons that I talked about Carcassonne earlier. Um, that the Carcassonne is great at all of these player counts, but when it's two players, just one other person is going to take their turn between your turn. So there's less chaos. There's a lot more that you feel like you can control. And there is a zero-sum nature to Quirkle that you actively pay attention to when you play this one two players. Um, in that big bag of tiles, there are exactly three of each identical tile. So um, there are three blue circles, for example. Um, and there are three green circles. And there are three yellow circles. So as you're playing through the game, you can count very easily because there's just three of each of these types. And you can use this to your advantage as you're trying to not set up your opponent for corkles or other various ways to get lots of points. So it's very thinky in that way. You're actively paying attention to what your opponent has and you just wish that you had x-ray vision <laughs> to see through their tiles because uh, sometimes you just need that one tile so desperately and you get to the point where you're like, maybe my opponent has it. In fact, maybe my opponent has a couple of copies of it. <laughs> and that can definitely be the case. So this is uh, one of those situations where at two players, obviously you just need to have more points than one of your opponents. So you can oftentimes do a lackluster play in order to botch something. Like maybe it looks like your opponent is trying to set up for a really big scoring and you have just not great options in front of you. Maybe you'll just take like a three or four point turn in order to completely spoil some awesome scoring opportunity that could happen. And um, <laughs> I feel like 50% of the time when I do one of those turns, my opponent uh, just throws up their arms. They're like, what the heck? Because <laughs> they were. They were obviously trying to set something up. And by obviously, uh, that brings up another point in that this is a game that just gets better and better as you play it more. I played this game. Uh, 27 log plays on BoardGameGeek at the moment, and um, I have played this one a few times before that. Uh, now, it is worth noting that most of those 27 plays happened on the iOS app for the game, which I'm honestly not even sure if it's still, if it's still out there. Uh, we still have it on our iPads, but I'm not sure if you can still get it. But it plays very well, and you can play this asynchronously. Um, during the pandemic, we've actually played 
a few four-player games of Quirkle uh, with uh, myself and my wife Jessica and then um, uh, her mom and stepdad. And they live like 3,000 miles away from us, but uh, we've all gotten on a Zoom call and we've played Quirkle together. So that is super cool. Uh, in fact, we kind of infected <laughs> them with Quirkle. Uh, they visited a couple of years ago and we taught it to them. And uh, they, being uh, my wife's uh, mom and stepdad, they went out and bought a copy of it. And they have played it at least once a day for the last like two or three years. Uh, they're on their third copy of the game. They played this game so much, strictly at two players. They played this game so much that their first two copies were unplayable because the paint had worn off the bricks. Uh, now, if that isn't a testament to this game being good at two players, I don't really know what is. <laughs> I've only played this game 27 times. Uh, they've now played it literally hundreds, uh, which is kind of fascinating considering we're the ones who introduced them to the game. Uh, but yeah, this game is just so good at uh, two players. It's so good in general, which is kind of interesting because honestly, the first couple times I played Quirkle, I was super take it or leave it. I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's kind of like Scrabble. I like it better than Scrabble because I don't have to rem memorize words. But beyond that, you know, whatever, it's a game. And I moved on. Uh, but it wasn't until I started playing this one two players that I fell in love with it. And now I'll happily play it with all player accounts. I think it's an ex exceptional game. Uh, but realistically, two players is what made me fall in love with Corkle. I think it's time for us to go into game number one. And that one is Pandemic Legacy. Uh, now, specifically, there are... Three pandemic legacies at this point. Uh, uh, season one, season two, and then season zero came out third, um, strangely enough. Uh, but for this one, I'm kind of talking about all of them in general, but more specifically about uh, season one and to a slightly lesser extent, season two. Um, pandemic Legacy is the game of Pandemic, which is a cooperative experience, which I think you could also make a good argument that it would on one of these lists, uh, but it's a fully cooperative game about trying to um, save the world from various diseases. And in um, season one, um, which is a legacy style game where you actually permanently alter the game, uh, the board and the cards and you draw on things and you tear things up um, as you play through up to 24 games of it. Um, in season one, um, we played this one two players. It was just myself and my wife, Jessica. We played it four-handed, which means there were effectively four players around the table, but it was just two human brains working through all of that. And it was amazing. It was a truly pinnacle experience. Uh, one of the highest, uh, most fun board gaming experiences I've had since I fell into board games back in 2008. And a big part of that was um, the game itself. Uh, season one in particular is so good. Um, it really felt like we were playing a board game and also binging a show on Netflix because there were so many twists and turns and what's gonna happen next, we just had to know. And it was great playing it two players because Realistically, it's a puzzle. Every single turn of this game is a puzzle. Every single play of this game is a puzzle uh, because there is some randomness, but you can also plan many turns in advance. And I really love the conversation that I've had with Jessica as we're just figuring out, like, you know, maybe this is a plan to try and solve the situation. Oh, let's try this plan. You know, we'll run like two or three different plans and then weigh the pros and cons of those and then end up going with one of them. And, and I'll say that um, we loved playing season one at uh, two players, again, four-handed. We played season two with two of our friends. So we played that one at four players and it was fine. It, it played, I'd say, just as well at four players. But I do think I would give it an edge to the two-player experience because of the collaborative, cooperative nature of this game and the puzzling nature of this game. Um, you have all these tools, but how do you use them and in what order do you use them to try and get to the benefit that you're trying to get to? It just seems like two players is a really good setting to not have anybody just kind of sit in a corner and watch other people talk, uh, which could potentially happen. Um, and also, I mean, this is maybe more of a couples thing than a two player thing, but it was great playing this with my wife and best friend because um, 
you know, it was just like, what do you want to do tonight? Let's play Pandemic Legacy Season uh, 1 again. We didn't even have to, like, uh, schedule things with our uh, other friends for that first season. Whereas when we played through Season 2, we did have more formalized scheduled things when our uh, friends came over. Um, I think, I don't want to go into the specifics of it, but Season 0, I feel a little bit less high on. I mean, as far as all these reasons for why I think two-player Pandemic Legacy works well, does work well also for Season 0. But um, Season 0 is capturing our attention and uh, interest less than the other two have been. Um, so I guess as far as like uh, raw overall fun, I would say season one and two um, just work really great as two player experiences. Also they're campaigns. So that's another reason why it can be nice to, um, to play this one with a lower player count because if you're not playing this one with a significant other, it's still gonna be logistically easier to organize um, play sessions with just one other person. And uh, especially with season one in particular, um, after one game, I just I just had to know what would happen next. Uh, so it was really great having a flexible schedule to be able to just keep going and just kind of binge through this game in the way that we did. So yeah, I'm obviously not going to the specifics of this because I don't want to spoil anything, but um, I couldn't not put this game on the list. And when I really thought about it, I, I, I just thought it had to be at the very top of the list considering how exceptionally fun it was. And maybe, maybe I've overrated it on this two-player only list because I like the game itself too much. That's certainly an argument you can be made. Uh, again, I think all of these games on this list, essentially all of them, you can make a good argument for, for shifting their positions around. Uh, but yeah, um, that is the top 10. And uh, at this point, I do have one more section to talk about, and that is honorable mentions. So these are games that I considered. Uh, in fact, I actually used this uh, online tool called Pub Meeple sorting or a uh, 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 top 10 list or something like that, which actually I, I dumped um, about 20 games into it and then made decisions back and forth. Like, do I like this game better than that game? And that is how I built this list. And I was actually surprised at what some of the games that fell off of the top 10. Uh, Tarji in particular, I was sure would be on the top 10 list. Of course it will be. But when I actually went through and um, compared it to all these other games in my mind, it actually wasn't. It missed it by a decent amount. I think it came in at the 15 mark, which uh, really surprised me. Let's briefly go through them. Um, they're in alphabetical order. Uh, the top one is Airland and Sea, which is a card game uh, with some area majority type stuff and some really interesting uh, um, uh, mechanics and actions that happen. I've only played the game once, so um, I had a hard time putting this uh, on the actual list. Uh, I think if I play this one one or two more times, it probably would have bumped something else off of the top 10. I, I think this one's really good. Uh, Circle the Wagons is a two-player only uh, mini game. It's only 18 cards, um, and it's got some really cool ideas in it because it's a tile lane game, uh, a tableau building tile lane game where you lay these cards on top of them. But every time you play the game, you take three cards and flip them over, and on the back of every single card, there are scoring conditions. And then you and one opponent play through the game and it takes about 10 minutes to play. But the variability is just extreme because you shuffle up this deck and you have three different scoring conditions that you play off of, which will make one game be very different from the next. It's it's very good. Finca is a um, resource acquisition Euro game with a great uh, action selection mechanic uh, that, um, a very short version, it's a circle, and uh, when you move one of your tokens, it will move a number of spaces equal to the number of uh, tokens on the spot where it was, and then where it lands, it will take a number of fruit equal to the number of tokens on that spot. So if there were three farmers and you move it, it'll move three times, and if it lands on the spot with one other farmer, there are two farmers there, and now you take two, you know, lemons or something like that. And then you use those resources to cash in. And we played this one two players a bunch. I was a little surprised this one didn't make the top 10 list. I, I thought it would, but it didn't. Um, 
Um, it, it plays great at other player counts as well, but because of that uh, circular rondel mechanic, uh, it can be more chaotic, which is fine at higher player counts, but you can definitely plan ahead more when there's only one other person between you. Uh, Hallertown is uh, on the honorable mentions list because that game is realistically all about playing through uh, cards and uh, achieving cards that you have in your hand. So the puzzle of that game is playing the cards that you have. There is some worker placement type stuff, so there is some interaction, but that is quite a nose-down type of game, so the number of people around the table has less of an impact on the overall gameplay, especially considering the, um, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but the way the game is balanced, it does feel pretty similar from each player count, and um, when you have less people, the game will go quicker, and a two-player game of Hallertau with people who know what they're doing can easily easily be played in less than 60 minutes, and the game is great. Uh, Jambo is on this list as well, uh, the honorable mentions list as well. That's a two-player only card game um, with an African theme that has some kind of take that mechanics in there, which I'm not too crazy about, but it also has some neat market mechanics and just a lot of great art. And honestly, it's been many years since I've played it, but I have enjoyed every single play of this one. And we still have a copy. And I don't see myself getting rid of it. Um, honestly, just talking about it right now makes me kind of want to play it again soon. Uh, Mr. Jack is on there, which is a two-player only deduction game where one person plays Jack the Ripper trying to escape the city and the other person is trying to find them. And uh, so this is an asymmetric type of two-player game of deduction for one player and obviously trying to sneak around, hide and seek for the other player. I've only played this one twice and I did enjoy it. It's been a few years. Um, I wasn't super surprised it wasn't make, didn't make the top 10 list, but um, you know, it would certainly be in the top 20. <laughs> uh, I, I've enjoyed the deduction that happens in that game. Like there's definitely some really cool stuff to think about there. Um, Spirit Island is an amazing, uh, fully cooperative game uh, that has so much going on. I'm not gonna go into the details of it, but um, this is one of those situations since it's fully cooperative, Having just one other person there to work off of um, can kind of simplify the overall game state. In fact, the size of the, the map that you play off of is directly proportional to the number of players. Uh, and I know for a fact that I have friends that play this two-player multiple times a week, and they've done this for years. Uh, so that one has some serious two-player staying power, even though it's also great at higher player counts. Uh, the Oracle of Delphi is my favorite uh, Seffenfeld game, and it's a racing-type game with a dice manipulation mechanic. And there's a decent amount of options and things that you can think about as you're moving your ship around this um, modular um, Aegean Sea, I guess. Maybe not Aegean, but Mediterranean Sea. And um, that can lead to a little bit of downtime and honestly not a bunch of player interaction. So playing this one at two players, which we have done a couple of times, uh, it just works really well. You're just doing the thing that Oracle of Delphi wants you to do. And when there's less people around the table to slow the game down, well... You know, that just makes the game even better. Uh, and the Rose King is the last one on uh, my official honorable mentions list. Uh, that one is also called Rosenkönig. Uh, it's a two-player only game, which I have only played on uh, uh, on electronic apps. That's part of the reason why it's not on the top 10 list. I, I thought about putting it there because this game is so cool. But um, the fact that I've never actually played it in person with you know real tokens uh, was a bit of a detractor. It's a two-player only game with a square grid and a single token that's shared between the two players. And on your turn, you simply play cards that move that token around and then you add various tokens to the board. It's been a long time actually since I've actually played this one. But I really love the neutral shared pawn type mechanic, but I do remember that the scoring in this game is like 
you multiply or the, the, the way the scoring works is great when you're using playing this game electronically because it does it automatically. But if, when you're playing it in person, I think it can be a lot harder to tell who is winning and who is losing. Uh, it's a game I'd actually like to try in person at some point because I found the game to be so interesting. But um, yeah, that hasn't happened, which is the reason it's not on the honorable mentions list. Um, uh, other people have mentioned uh, uh, Tash Kalar and Watergate, which... Upon retrospect, I probably should have thrown those into the honorable mentions because those are great too. But at a certain point, <laughs> if the honorable mentions list is too long, then uh, you know I should probably cull it down either way. Uh, but yeah, that is going to uh, wrap up the top 10 list as well as these honorable mentions. Um, and at this point, before I end things, uh, I want to take a look at the chat because there's been a lot of chat and there's probably some uh, questions that I could be answering here. Uh, Brian asked uh, regarding Pandemic Legacy, uh, do I recommend playing two roles each or can you play two players with just one role each? You can certainly play one role each, but it's my understanding that from a balance perspective, the game is a little more challenging with all four players, and we like that challenge. Also, you know, each of the roles that you play have um, asymmetries, and we liked the extra mixture of having four different roles that can work together in various ways, as opposed to picking just two. Um, it just seemed like it made for a more well-rounded experience that we had no problem with, because you just put all the cards out in the middle of the table. So um, I guess it made it a little bit more complex and uh, we preferred that complexity. <laughs> Daniel mentioned no top, no cube rails games in the top 10. Yeah, uh, cube rails games in general have a, a minimum player count of three. Not sure if I've seen any that have a player minimum player count of two. Uh, so that is definitely <laughs> the reason you didn't see any on this list. At this point, I think this top 10 list is going to come to an end. Uh, I hope that uh, people have enjoyed it live, and I hope that it's uh, uh, been good uh, in the edited version that comes in afterwards as well. And I don't have any specific plans to do another top 10 list soon, but um, I've enjoyed doing this one so far, so uh, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, and yeah, I think on that note, I'm going to bring this one to a close. Thanks again. <laughs>